O everlasting Jesus, in the early morning you gave yourself to be reviled and scoffed at by your enemies. Visit us, we pray, at this hour with your grace and mercy, that throughout the day we may find peace and joy in all that serves to bring you praise and glory, who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, ever one God, world without end. Amen. All right. Let me ask you this before we get going. Um, We'll hear. Do we have a... I'm sure this goes to something good. Pass that around. Where does it go to this week? Ghana and Westfield House. Okay. Take that and pass that around. Sign in. Oh, man. You are a man among men. You know that? This is Mueller's. This has been this has been sanctified before use, I'm sure. This is great. Where is Mueller? Oh, there's this one. Where's your better half at? <laughs> All right, before we get going, um, I think Burkholz, there he is. Look at that, in the white collar today for transfiguration. Are there any questions before or from last week, or should I just, uh, should I just get going? Any questions from last week? Yeah. Well, I'll, here, the question is, how do the disciples know that it's Elijah and Moses? Now I'll one-up you. I think it's actually Elijah and John the Baptist. Moses and John the Baptist, sorry. Um, how do they know? I don't know. Maybe they read their scriptures and they... I don't know. I don't know how they knew. Um, maybe they said they were Moses and Elijah. Or maybe Jesus said, hey, this is Moses and Elijah. Or maybe they just knew. I don't know how they knew. That's a very good question. Somehow they knew instantly when they saw them. But I actually think it's John the Baptist because at the end of, you remember the end of the Old Testament, right before the Gospel of Matthew, it ends with, I will send Elijah. Now, Elijah's been dead for hundreds of years at this point. I will send Elijah, my messenger, before your face. And John the Baptist is the new and greater Elijah. And at this point, by, by the time the transfiguration rolls around, John the Baptist has already been beheaded, so he's already in heaven. So, I don't know, I think there's, it might be John the Baptist, but, you know, it says Elijah, so we can, we, can, we can rest assured that it is Elijah for sure, but maybe it's John the Baptist, who knows? How do they know? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> Any, anything else before we get going? Okay, good, I'll start. Um, last week... You remember we talked about two distinct things, uh, two ways in which the Lord gets after you, okay? The first way was by his favor, and the second way was by his gift. And you remember favor. If you can just remember this from last week, you've basically remembered everything. Favor is the Lord on you, okay? And gift is the Lord in you. Okay, everyone remember that from last week? Not along. You weren't here. Yeah, that's You will now, that's right. Last week it was all about the Lord getting after you in two ways, favor and gift. He gets at you on you, which is what we talked weeks talked about weeks ago with the Virgin Mary. He speaks a word and he gets on her, but then also he's not merely on you with his forgiveness, he's also in you. And I gave you the example of the movie Gladiator, right? How many of you have seen that? Raise your hands. Oh, man, 
and you guys are good. It's a great movie. And at one point, they're about to kill, um, kill the gladiator, but it's all, up to, uh, it's all up to Caesar whether or not he lives. And Caesar says, yes, he lives, or no, he doesn't. If he says, yes, he lives, that's an example of favor. It's Caesar's opinion on him. Yes, he lives. He's not guilty. Don't kill him, okay? But then we also said that the Lord gets at you in a different way. He not only speaks a word which forgives you and makes you clean, but he also invades your flesh. And when he invades your flesh, that transforms the way you live, that transforms the way you see people, that transforms everything about you. Okay? And kind of the... The premise for all of this is that Lutheranism, to a certain extent, is very much focused on the first part, on the favor. The Lord forgives your sins. And now that's, as I said last week, forgiveness is not the last great word of the Lord. The last thing he has to say to you is not forgiveness. But Lutherans tend to focus on this. It's all about forgiveness. It's all about the Lord saying, I forgive you all your sins. You're no longer a damn sinner. You Uh, you're covered by my son's blood, and now you're one of my children. But he also goes a bit further, and he says, I'm going to put myself into you, which will transform everything about you. Okay? So, last night, date night, after the basketball game, we are now, where's Bruzek? (laughs) That's good he's not here. (laughs) Um... We had a tournament yesterday at Walther. We went one and one yesterday. Should have won the first game. The team wasn't better than us, but what are you going to do? Second game, we won by 15. But afterwards, it was after church, it was date night, which means you get a movie from the library because they're free. And then you can, you, uh, you know, you have pizza and a beer and you, you watch a movie. So last night, it was Chocolat. Who's seen the movie? Oh, this is so good. I was so worried that no one would raise their hand and it'd be, <laughs> it's like teaching confirmation then. Um, <laughs> so in the movie, okay, you see this idea of favor and gift so clearly. And you remember, if you've seen the movie, and if you haven't seen the movie, I won't give too much away, but you really should see it, because this is the movie that exemplifies the sacramental life of the Christian. It's the movie Par Excellence. But you remember in this movie that... The Christian life for those folks who lived in that small town in France was something completely external. It was something completely outside of themselves. And you remember when, uh, when they would walk around the city. It was during Lent. They opened up a chocolate shop. That's what causes the big hugabaloo in the city, is that there's a chocolate shop opening up during Lent, which, of course, during Lent, there's no chocolate. It's completely a time of fasting. But the Christian life for them is something completely outside of themselves. They know it, they know they're forgiven, and yet there is no joy in their lives. In fact, the overarching theme of the movie is this idea of tranquility, okay? Where everything is balanced. And that's kind of at the heart and soul of the idea of favor. You're a damn sinner, and the Lord says, I forgive you of all your sins. It balances out. And yet at the end of the movie, where it takes a dramatic turn, 12 minutes from the end, because I stopped it there so I could watch it again this morning, uh, is where the mayor of the city, who completely understands the Christian life in an external way, it is an external reality, this is who we are, and no matter how it feels, whether it's joyful or not, this is what we're going to do, he sneaks into the chocolate shop at night, 
going in to try and destroy all the chocolate molds that this woman has made. And as he gets in, the, this is the greatest scene. He takes his knife and he chops a piece of the chocolate off and it flies up and hits him on the lip. And he gets one taste of the chocolate and it transforms his life. And you remember what happens, and if you've seen the movie, he can't stop eating the chocolate. So he's resting in this woman's front room, just, I mean, just gorging himself with chocolate. He cannot stop himself. I mean, that's the sacramental life. You can't get enough. You get one taste and you can't get enough. But finally, for that, for that mayor and finally for that city, the Christian life was not merely something external. The Lord says this and so you do it. It was something that became a part of them in a real, concrete, tangible way. He tasted the chocolate and he knew the joy of the Lord. And so from then on, it wasn't about tranquility. It wasn't merely about this for that. It was about having real joy that only God can give. Okay? And that comes when you become one flesh with something. That mayor became one flesh with the chocolate. And in that, there was great joy. So that's what we're trying to move towards, okay? We can talk about forgiveness all we want. We can talk about favor all we want. But frankly, that's not the Lord's last great gift. You remember in the scriptures, the language of sin and forgiveness works like this. St. Paul says, where sin increases, and that's, that's addition kind of talk. Two plus two plus two. Grace abounds all the more. This is sin. And grace, however, on the other hand, is language of multiplication, Two times two times two. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. The Lord's not merely out to make things even. He's not, he's not out merely to say things are now stable or tranquil. He's out to say, I've given you more than you ever could have imagined. That's the language of gift. You've got sins, the Lord take those, takes those away. And in addition to all of that, he takes up residence in your flesh and transforms the way you live. Okay? So any question? How does that, how does that, how does that make you feel? That's a good question, good postmodern question. How does it make you feel? <laughs> is everyone okay with that? Hey, um, listen, this is me caring about you right now. You can laugh, that was supposed to be funny. <laughs> any questions? That leads me to believe... Oh, go ahead. Good. Thank you. <laughs> um, would I be comfortable doing it, or would you want me to do it? Okay. The question is, would you be comfortable distinguishing between the two natures in Jesus... Are there any confirmation kids here? No. They'd know this as homoousius, one substance in Jesus. The two natures, one substance, and the mystical union between you and Jesus. Okay? What the question really is at the root of that is, what's the difference between Jesus being human and divine, human and, divine and you, a human being, being joined to Jesus who is divine? And I would say in a very real sense, those are almost one and the same. You know, in Jesus, he, he takes on flesh and he delivers to the flesh his divine attributes, who he is as God. Which is why today in the sermon I said, he doesn't merely, merely bear light, he is light. 
And in the same way, um, he does that to you. You don't merely... You don't merely bear God in your flesh, but in a very real way, you become one flesh with God himself. Now, the, the ancient church and the Eastern church maybe takes this a bit too far when they say, God became man that you might become God. However, there's something very true about that. It may be better to say, God became man that you might become like God. Or as Luther said in his sermon from 1514, the word became flesh so that the flesh might become word. Okay? So who God is, is delivered to the person of his son in the flesh. John 1, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, verse 14. And in the same way, when he gets after you, he joins himself, body, blood, soul, and divinity. It's more than just his flesh and blood. You don't just get the human nature of Jesus. You get who Jesus is, which is divine, which is how he transforms your life. You get all of that in your flesh as well. Okay? So whoever Jesus is, you should be able to find that in yourself when you look in the mirror. Is that a good dodge or no? Okay, good. <laughs> Any other questions? Okay, look at page one then. This is just from last week. I just want to make sure we understand uh, kind of where we're going and, 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 uh, and what we're talking about. I don't want you to be confused about those, all this because it's, it's actually very simple, but I know the language might not be completely familiar to all of you. So uh, look at page one. Point one, remember we talked about last week, all, this is all beauty is objective, it's sacramental, it's divine, it's delivered, it's on you. And yet he's not merely on you, point three, but he's also in you. And we looked at all those texts from Scripture where the Lord actually gets in your flesh. Remember Genesis uh, chapter 2? From Adam's side came his bride Eve, and the two shall become one flesh. You remember St. Paul on marriage? And then he, he throws you for a loop. He says, lo, I tell you a mystery. Just when you think it's all about you, very postmodern, he says, lo, I tell you a mystery. In the Latin, lo, I tell you a sacrament. I'm speaking about Jesus and the church. Okay? So what Jesus does and who Jesus is is now reflected in your relationship between Jesus and the church. And then also we see that in the order of marriage where he says, signifying us unto us the mystical union that is betwixt Christ and his church, which holy estate Christ adorned and beautified with his presence and first miracle that he wrought in Cana of Galilee. And even then the Holy Supper, I think this is page 3, in the Holy Supper is where that is actually delivered as reality and delivered as gift. As I just said, the Lord doesn't merely put his body and blood into you. But he puts his body and his blood and his soul and his divinity all into you. You realize the Lord could do this multiple ways. He could, mere, he could I say merely, which isn't the best way of speaking, but with the Lord, he has, always has more gifts to give. He could merely say, I forgive you all your sins. He could just say that, and, uh, and that would maybe be enough, but it's not enough for Jesus. Instead, he not only wants to forgive your sins and, in a sense, declare you righteous, which is what happens here with favor. It's the Lord on you. Why does he declare you righteous? Because his son has covered you with himself. But he also wants to get inside of you which is the gift talk. It's the Lord in you. 
So he doesn't stop by merely saying you're forgiven, but instead he goes a bit further and puts himself into your flesh, which joins, him to, joins yourself to him in such a way that you can't but help live the life that he's called you to live. You can't help but live the life that he himself lives. I mean, this, this makes all the difference in the world. Why do people not come to church? Because they don't know that they're one flesh with Jesus. It's very simple. Why do people not tithe? They don't think they're one flesh with Jesus. But if you begin to see yourself as so joined to Jesus that you can't help but do what he does, then doing all the things Jesus has called you to do, go to church, love your spouse, treat your kids well, tithe 10%, do all of this stuff, it makes complete sense. It's very simple. I mean, this is like basketball with the 7th and 8th graders. Basketball is not hard. That's what they completely misunderstand. They get out there and they start thinking. That's their first mistake. Don't think, just play. <laughs> you want to know why I have eight losses? Because I thought too much. Don't think, just play. You know this stuff. It's part of you. It's the same way with the Christian life. Don't think about it. This is what the Lord does. He puts himself into you and he simply says, come and run with me and do what I do. And when you begin to think about life that way and live life that way, not only is it easy, but it is great joy. Back to the movie Chocolat. You know, the life that he lived before he started eating the chocolate in the chocolate shop was not easy. But once he indulged himself with the gifts and in a sense became one flesh with them, life was great joy. And it was easy. It was very easy. Because the Lord was there delivering his good gifts. And when the Lord does that and joins himself to you in such a way that you can't escape him, it's the best life you could ever imagine. And that's really where we're trying to push you. Past merely the Lord forgiving you, but on to even more gifts that the Lord has to give. Okay? How's that? Everyone okay? Yeah. It's a good question. The question is, how does the Holy Spirit fit into all of this? You remember that um, in the Creed, you confess, you confess the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one, two, three, right? You confess the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit this way. One, two, three. Here's how you confess it. And yet the way you live it, or the way you experience it, is actually three, two, one. Holy Spirit, Son, and the Father. The Holy Spirit brings you to the Son, or better, brings the Son to you. And if you have the Son, you have the Father. So the Holy Spirit plays a key role in this. This is why you know Pentecost among the Lutherans is downplayed as not a huge feast day, when in actuality it's everything. Uh, the Pentecost, Pentecost uh, brings the incarnation to you. So we celebrate Christmas with great joy, and then we say, well, Pentecost, that's kind of goofy. We put up red flags, and we're Lutheran, so we don't talk about the Holy Spirit. Uh, when in actuality, you don't get the gifts of the incarnation unless you have a Pentecost. So the Holy Spirit plays a huge role because he's the one that brings the bodily presence of Jesus to you, which is what we're trying to get after here in the idea of gift, Jesus inside of you. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, he's never going to get in you. Okay? Which is why even at the Holy Supper, 
You know, in the ancient church, they would pray a prayer over the elements, calling down the Holy Spirit, called the epiclesis. And that's actually a very fruitful prayer, because if if the Holy Spirit doesn't get after that bread and wine, uh, you're not guaranteed you're going to have the body and blood of Jesus. But that's his job, is to bring Jesus to you. And so to pray the Holy Spirit over those gifts and say, bring Jesus to this, um, that's a very fruitful and salutary thing. What else? Anything else? Okay, I'll tell you another story, because I like stories. I might even sit down for this. What do you think? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I think one of the best biblical examples of this, of favor and gift, is the account of the Annunciation, where the angel comes and speaks to Mary. Because you have both of these things present there. Uh, In fact, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Let's just look at that very quickly. Luke chapter 1, verse 34. You remember the angel has come to Mary. Um, You know, maybe she was in prayer. Who knows what she was doing? But the angel comes to Mary and says, hey, guess what? You're a virgin, not married yet, and you're going to have a kid. And Mary asks uh, a very real question, not the same question that uh, Zechariah asks of the angel when he says, you know, but basically his question is one of doubt. Mary's is more of one of, Mary's question is more of, I, okay, if you say so, just tell me exactly how this is all going to happen here. Verse 34, chapter 1, verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? That's a real-life question. And the angel answered her, and this is very important here, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now, is that favor talk or gift talk? That's favor talk. The Holy Spirit will come on you, Right? Favor is on you, gift is in you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's still favor talk. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And as Luther says, at that very moment, Mary conceives Jesus in through her ear hole. How does she conceive? In her ear. So the angel speaks a word. And what does he speak? The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. This goes back to your question about the role of the Holy Spirit. Comes upon the Blessed Virgin Mary. And what happens at that very moment? Jesus takes up residence in her flesh. There's no closer union than Jesus and Mary uh, save a mother and their child. That's exactly what Mary experienced with Jesus. And that's precisely what you experience with Jesus as well. The Holy Spirit overshadows her, and at the very same moment, Jesus takes up residence in her flesh. And I would propose to you that that changes Mary's life forever. She's not the same woman as she was 15 minutes before the Annunciation. She's not the same woman. Just just biologically, she was a virgin and now she's a mother. But even deeper than that, she has become one flesh with God himself. And that can't help but change you. I mean, even in the gospel for today, when Jesus touches you, that changes everything about you. The disciples are in great fear. The text says they're terrified. 
and Jesus touches them and says, stand up. You have nothing to worry about. And so even with Mary, the Holy Spirit comes upon you, favor, and Jesus comes into her gift, and for all of that, it transforms her life. It makes her a faithful Christian. Who's the one that you see at Cana saying, do whatever he tells you? Mary. Who's the one who stays all the way until his death at the cross? Mary. There's no way around it. Mary is really the first Christian. And she's an icon of what every Christian should be, not just women. This, this idea that Mary is only about being an icon for women is kind of misleading because she's more than that. She's an icon for every Christian, male or female. What you see in Mary, you should also see in yourself. The Holy Spirit resides on you and you've been forgiven and Jesus has become one flesh with you and that transforms your life forever. You're the one who says, do whatever Jesus tells you. And just think about that in your own life. Think about how many times you want to say, "Uh, do whatever you think is best. Or I'll do whatever I think is best. Mary is so utterly unselfish that she can actually say, in spirit and in truth, do whatever he tells you. How many of you would have gone all the way to the cross and waited with Mary? That's that's the guy who you thought was going to redeem Israel, and now he's hanging there dead. And yet Mary knows that there's something more. You see in Mary this icon of faithfulness, and you see in her this icon of love and this icon of charity. And for all of that, you should look to her and say, that's what the church is all about. So look back at your handout, okay? Just for a minute. Point six. This may be an easier way of talking about it. The Lord can do two things to you. He can justify you and he can also sanctify you. And justification is in in a very real sense just being forgiven. It's the Lord's favor. He looks at you and you're a damn sinner and he says, it's all okay because my son died for you. But he he doesn't want to leave you just there. Being forgiven, that doesn't get you very far in life. And frankly, your life is not it, it's, it's joyless. Chocolate. It's joyless. But he says, I've got, a, I've got something more to give. I'm going to put myself into you, and in that, I will make you one who lives forgiven. So to be justified is to be forgiven. To be sanctified is to live forgiven. And as point seven says, now you not only look different, favor, but you also live differently. Gift. Jesus inside of you. And all of this is because of gifted one fleshness, gifted beauty, mystical union, Christ in you. You can't take credit for any of this. So if you go home today and call the bishop of the Northern Illinois District and say, Gainick is teaching false doctrine because he said it's all about me, let it be known, it's not all about you. It's about Jesus. You have to start with Christ, who forgives and who invades, and who now energizes your life. Jesus always does the verbs. And that gives great glory to Jesus, and and it brings great humility to you, and yet there is still great gift in all of that. 
And as we said last week then, the incarnation is everything. It's all about Christ invading this cosmos, this universe, and now invading your flesh. What happened in Bethlehem happened to you. What happened in Bethlehem happened to you. And it continues to. The manger now is your tongue. You can't get around it. You can't escape Jesus. And so where we want to go with all of this is not to narrow Jesus down uh, or to pin him into a hole and say, you're all about forgiveness. What we really want to do is expose Jesus for all he's worth. And we see that not in his declaration of you being not guilty, but we expose Jesus for all he's worth when we see him invading your flesh and then look at your life. If you want to see what Jesus is worth, look at your life. And that'll tell you how much he's worth to you and how much he's worth to the world. And that you can either, you can either take that in the way of the law and say, Jesus isn't worth very much. Or you can take that as pure gift and say, isn't, isn't it wonderful that the one who created and redeemed the universe dwells in my body and I have the chance to bear that to the ends of the earth. So have it how you wish. Thankfully, I think, I think this crowd is, you want nothing more than to run with Jesus. Okay? Any questions? Favor and gift. Any, everyone understand that kind of talk? We're at about 11 o'clock, so we can't go much further. Any questions? Chocolat makes sense? Okay. Mary makes sense? Hopefully. Okay, come back next week, and um, we'll try to expose Jesus a little more and see, see what all he's got planned for us, okay? All right, here we go. Let's pray and let's go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, thanks for coming.